0: We recorded this episode in person at our RICO office. It was a hot day, so we had the windows open and a storm was brewing. So that's what you can hear in the background.
1: You've just got to pull your money out of organizations that don't have a sustainable agenda. I would say Shell really have zero credible route to net zero and don't care. And then you had BP who were like, yeah, we do see the future as mobility. We see how this company is going to change. There is a path here towards net zero for this company. BP now, because there's been no government mandate, no government targets, completely backtracked on all of their promises. So, you know, screw them, I guess.
0: Welcome to the Future in Sound podcast. I'm your host, Jen Wilson. This is a podcast where we talk about prioritizing people, planet, and profit. In each episode, we speak with world leading experts who help us see the future we want and our role in it. This is episode 20 Pragmatic Protest. Quick story. I remember when I was talking to a friend of mine about developing a brand for the company that would become Rico, And he shared with me that he knew one of the most talented young designers in the city of London, and that she had done some work for Extinction Rebellion. And I took a quick look at her placards and just saw how witty and talented she was and knew that i needed to learn more about her work fast forward 3 years later harriet richardson is now our designer and i guess senior director did i get that right harriet you did, you got that right. yeah she's smiling at me at the moment uh, i guess i got that right there's a senior in there there's a director in there she's good at design and what we're going to do this episode is we're going to co-create a quick story, because I actually think that the combination that Harriet has of a keen interest in protest on the climate side, with also an interest in working on RICO, is a dynamite combination. And so we're going to hear a little bit from Harriet on how she combines these two parts of her, of her work. Harriet, over to you.
2: Thank you so much. I mean, it was wonderful meeting Jem because I came into the climate sort of scene just being sort of familiar with the more protesty side. So, meeting Jem was like opening a whole new world because what Rico, you know, wants to do is to change the sort of professional setting which I think that it's, it's really interesting for me because with the protests and these signs and, you know, maybe making people laugh while they manage to sort of get to grips with the climate crisis, um, although that's really important, I also think meeting people where they are, not where you want them to be, is really important as well. So tackling the climate crisis from both sides, from a sort of street level, but also a business facing side is really important and that's exactly what I've been able to you know help Jen with at RICO and I yeah I I just find it so interesting um, learning about climate from all those different sort of angles and exercising creativity in whichever you know way that might be if it's branding a company or helping to communicate, you know, the company's offering in a visual way, or if it's placards, uh, they're all the sort of, you know, the aim is the same at the end of the day.
0: Essentially what Harriet is not saying is that she's the reason why uh, we have Swish uh, branding and uh, great communications. It's all with her leadership and helping to steer the way forward on that. She also came up with the uh, brand Rico and deserves credit for naming the company um, and really thinking about the meaning behind it uh, regarding the company, not just marketing. And I think that what Harriet has taught us at Rico about that dynamic combination between protest and meeting people where they are, as she shared, relates perfectly to the guest on the show today. He's an expert in critical efficiency technology that is going to help us meet the climate crisis head-on and is also somebody who works on the protest side. So without any further ado, let's get into it. Sam Cryer is the founder of Thermalon. Thermalon is a company that develops high-performance, non-combustible insulation material to meet energy efficiency and fire regulations. He has a PhD from Imperial on polymer chemistry. He's an associate of the Royal College of Sciences, and he's absolutely passionate about combating the climate crisis. Sam, welcome to the Future in Sound podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: One of the things that I'd love to get started with, Sam, is just, I'd love to hear more about why the climate crisis? Like, what is it about climate that got you involved?
1: I've sort of been aware of it for a long time. I think, like, it probably was in my sort of teen years when you start learning in science at school about fossil fuels, and they're like, oh, they will run out one day. And you're like, oh, that seems pretty important, right? And Then I did my undergrad and you start seeing some things about the climate and uh, sort of the direction things are going and warming. And I guess probably as I was starting university, it was just as like Al Gore was maybe going to come into the presidency. And there was a lot more chat from him about sort of the climate crisis. And then I was looking to do my PhD and I was like, I really want to do something that's good for the planet. There seems to be this looming thing. I don't really know much about it, but... I really want to do something that's good for people. And this seems like a real vector that I can put my sort of knowledge into. You know, I've done my undergrad in chemistry. I'm really interested in science in the world. And it seems like there's this big problem in the world that needs some kind of innovative solutions. And so that was sort of what prompted me to go and do my PhD in solar materials. So developing new types of uh, printable inks that could potentially be used for solar absorption and turning it into electricity. And it was during that period that I really started, you know, going in and reading papers, reading papers about the climate crisis, you know, sort of Nature released their first journal about climate change completely.
0: When was this, Sam?
1: I think I started my undergrad in 2007, PhD was in 2012, um, so this is probably 2013, 2014, that it was really coming into my radar of like just how big a disaster this was potentially going to be. And I think that was the first time I got what i probably call climate anxiety over like, oh, wow, you know, if we don't do something, like, there might not be a humanity. And I think people get really switched off by that. And it's really scary. And it is really scary. And so, yeah, that was the first time I think that that sort of thing came to me.
0: And when you reflect on the cohort, because you've gone, obviously gone and done your PhD, you know, you've been highly engaged uh, through um, academic venues. When you think about your cohort going through, um, whether they were studying chemistry or other topics, how would you say that, you know, a generation that's sort of coming to the fore in professional settings right now is looking at the climate crisis differently than previous generations?
1: I think it's with colossal frustration. You know, there's always going to be academics who just care about science. And there's always some people that went into it because they, you know, just wanted to do some chemistry and push the boundaries or weren't sure what they're going to do with their life and decided to do a PhD. And there is a good portion that were there because they're like, I really want to do something important. I'm really worried about this. And I really want to see if I can have an impact and try my best to, to give something towards that. And I actually have a lot of friends that did a lot of the environmental sciences masters at Imperial as well. And they are, you know, sort of, this was back in, I guess, 2016, 2017. And they are now sort of at the forefront in a lot of companies of sustainability because they came as an intern, you know, in 2018, being like into a lot of big companies going, oh, we should maybe do some of this sustainability stuff. And now they're really at the forefront of like the sustainability agenda in these companies because they're the only one with any knowledge of it. Um, And even then, trying to push forward this agenda, they're just constantly battered with shareholder profits. Oh, yes, we can do that, but not yet. Right. And when you look at what needs to happen, we have to be acting as if we're about to go into a world war. That's the level that change needs to happen. And so I feel we have a whole generation of people that are frustrated to the point of really trying and burning out or... Switched off.
0: I was going to ask about climate anxiety mm. and how that comes to the fore, um, and how pervasive it is. You know, what are some of the signs of, of climate yeah. anxiety in your experience with within the cohort that you're you're working with?
1: Literally on the way here, I checked the news, and we we're about to switch on a bunch of coal power plants, right, to deal with the heat wave because of increased AC use. And it's just when you talk to people, you, it's just like your head and your hands, like what can we do? What can we do? And, and for me personally, I have, I have pretty much switched off from the news. Like I rarely check the news anymore other than small snippets here and there because it's too overwhelming, right? Running a company, there's a lot to that. It's pretty like, takes a lot from you. And I'm like, okay, this is the thing that I can put my time and energy into. And you have to pick what you put that into. And actually, for me, taking in all of the, the doom, all of the climate, all the other stuff in terms of news and content, I really don't find helpful for me. And so I actually switch off from a lot of that so that I can switch on and focus on the thing that I feel can make a difference, which is my business.
0: I'd love to hear more about your business and how that interlays, both, both at a high level for our technical and non-technical audience, mm-hmm. You know what what the business is about, why you started it. And then also maybe a layer on, you know, what does that mean for the climate anxiety that you feel?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So I guess we're quite different in that most hard science businesses spin out of academia. And we actually came from a venture builder program called Deep Science Ventures. And that was two guys who were ex-imperial innovation, saw academic startup have the same problem again and again, which is there's a nice piece of science. How do we turn this into a business? Not there's a problem over here. How do we solve that with science? And so they take generally people with PhDs or expertise and knowledge in a certain space, get them to analyze it, and then try and start a business that solves a big problem. Because if you can de-risk the market, it sort of helps sort of investors come in at an earlier stage to what is a high-risk business because of the technical aspects of it. And so I was at Deep Science Ventures looking at really the whole CO2 value chain. My Reem, it was a start a carbon negative company, go. That was it. It was like nothing else. And so that was the place that I was looking at the CO2 value chain, whether it was hydrogen economy or elsewhere, and trying to find a place that you could, um, yeah, start a hard science business.
0: When you say um, uh, carbon negative, tell me more about what that means to you.
1: Yeah, well, that was the first question I asked Dom at New Science Ventures. What does that mean? And he was like... Well, the first thing is for you to define it, right? And I I don't think I ever came to like a succinct definition because actually, you know, this was again back in 2017, 2018. And we've seen the last sort of, I don't know, what is it, five, 10 years really focus on CO2. And now everyone's going, "Uh, what about biodiversity? What about habitat loss? What about uh, rainforests and animals and everything else that is massively linked with the ecosystems? Is not all just about carbon, but back then it was, <laughs> right? And so it was sort of like, okay, well, how do we reduce CO two? How do we pull it out the atmosphere? How do we stop big emitters? The easiest thing to do is to not emit it, if possible, or to reduce emissions. Like that's really the beginning. And so I was looking really uh, niching into cheap materials because there's like actually every energetic process on earth is possible because of insanely cheap oil and gas right Mm -hmm. everything we do from the materials from the processing from the fertilizers when you go back to basics and you drill down into that sort of value chain at some point we burn a load of oil and gas to make something of a uh, some kind of product and it was like well how do we find expensive products and replace them with something more sustainable and so I was looking at materials like uh, phenolics and polyurethanes and a lot of these plastic materials that cause sort of microplastic pollution. And thinking, well, how do you replace these with something else? Because they're expensive materials, as oil and gas products go. And that was when I was like, well, actually, a lot of them are used for insulation. It's like, well, actually, there's like a double, a double whammy here, right? Maybe we can replace that horrible material and make a really efficient insulator that's sort of safe and high performance that reduces emissions. So it's like sort of a twofold. Thing to it. And that was the point that I was like, okay, well, there's something here. There's, here's the big problem. You know, there's this sort of need for new types of materials, sustainable insulation materials. And especially sort of, it was a year after Grenfell when I was doing this, this huge need for fire safe materials as well. And so that was that was like the premise. That was the market problem. Like there are no high-performance, fire-safe, and affordable building insulation materials. Okay. That's a material problem. I'm a material scientist. How do we solve them?
0: And one of the, it's really interesting because you're talking about the double whammy of um, improved climate performance within the context of the consumer primarily. So when you look at carbon negative, it's, it's not just the carbon negative performance of the business you've started. You're thinking about the impact with the clients where the technology is being implemented. Is that right?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So it was sort of like that carbon negative comes in production and in use.
0: And how has that, starting the business, working on scalable technology to reduce carbon emissions um, across the market, you know, how has that impacted the anxiety that you feel around climate?
1: I think it gives me purpose. I think I look at some people I know, and they're really nice jobs, they work maybe in the food industry, or they get lots of meals out. Or, um, and I'm very happy for them in that work, and they enjoy their job. But I was like, I couldn't do that. As much as I would enjoy it, I, I need my work to help abate that anxiety to a degree. Because you're like, actually right now, with my skill set and what I'm doing, I don't feel there is anything more I could be doing. And I think that's the thing that I find you've got to, when there is so much to do, when there is so many problems across all levels of society, you know, you are only one person. And you've got to think about what is the best use of your time and your knowledge. And this is where I was like, actually, by having a company that I feel could have a big impact, it's very high risk there's potentially very high reward to it. But someone's got to do some of those high risk, high reward things. And I feel like that could be me. And so it does help a lot in that sort of helping to reduce. I don't know if it completely reduces it, but I think it at least gives me purpose in what I'm doing and helps to drive and motivate me to do my day-to-day work.
0: That makes a lot of sense. So really being purpose-oriented has helped a lot with the anxiety around climate. I'm really interested in maybe hearing a little bit more about the business that you've started. Um, Probably not the full PhD chemistry level of exactly how it works, but what's special about the company? Where do you see it fitting in the market?
1: Yeah, so the, the materials that we make are something called an aerogel. They are a highly porous material. So they have these tiny little holes in it that trap heat. And the holes or the pores are so small, it's actually a super insulator, which means it's more insulating than air. They're very hard materials to make. And so historically, people have made them using supercritical processes, high-temperature processes, and they are as expensive as they sound, right? And so you like, okay, amazing material. It's made of silica. It won't really burn. It's super high performance because of this nanopore structure. Insanely expensive because of the processing. And so that was. Like,
0: how expensive is expensive?
1: For, for an oil and gas product, anything from 3,000 to 7,000 pounds a meter cubed is sort of market prices for products at the moment. Plastic insulation and rock coal, you can get 100 to 150. So you're talking like anything from 10 to 30x, maybe higher, 60x. You know, so like when it comes to industries like construction, where margins are made on percents, any product that is, more expensive than a current product in use, won't be used, unless it has a huge value add. And so I think that's then looking at where the markets that we intersect are. Okay, we can reduce that price by 50% uh, pilot, maybe five or six times when we go to industrial scale. It's starting to get close to that sort of price bracket of current use materials. And there's this added sort of added addition that by having it thin, you can increase floor space in tall buildings so suddenly you have an increasing footprint and the reason we build up in cities is because land is so expensive and so if you can have thin materials that are fire safe you can maximize floor space in tall buildings and then looking at heritage and old buildings which is something like four million properties in the UK that are uninsulated you have to insulate inside because you can't change the nice pretty outside and so again you want to maximize floor space with thin materials so that's sort of our real added value.
0: Got it. I mean, I can say that I live in a home that was built in uh, 1897, and um, I really, I get what you mean, Um, where floor space and a thin material really makes a difference. That's really exciting. I mean, one of the things that Rico tends to recommend when looking at the carbon uh, footprint um, and profile of a company and thinking about how to bring it down is to always start with efficiency. Um, that there's actually a huge ROI on efficiency as a starting point, and then to look at renewable options. And finally, maybe, you know, five years down the road, in most cases, uh, think about considering um, very high quality offsets, but not until all of the efficiency options and levers have been pulled. And that's just purely based on economics and the certainty around actual uh, carbon reduction. Do you have a sense of the impact of your technology on the performance, the energy performance of buildings?
1: It's hard to say. And that's that's the thing is like, especially in retrofit, uh, there is no like golden bullet, right? For insulating these old homes. What you need to do is create a suite of usable materials that will help improve performance to be able to get to the level that you can install a heat pump. You know, I imagine if you install a heat pump in your house at the moment, it's probably so inefficient that, You would spend thousands of pounds on electricity a month to, to, you know, heat your home. And so so it's about getting all these different properties and finding materials and products that aerogels will be, I hope, a big part of that to improve each building's efficiency as much as possible. So that might be, you you can't quite get yours as efficient, but maybe we could increase it by 20, 30%, maybe 50% if you can get the right sort of material in place to reduce the burden for putting in electrical heating
0: certainly with electricity and energy prices where they've been, that that sounds like a, an exciting delta. I guess I wanted to pivot slightly. Like, obviously, you know, you've started a business that is very much focused on, you know, doing its part for the climate crisis. And there are a lot of businesses that we need right now that aren't as closely oriented to the net zero journey. And I'm really interested in getting your views, Sam, on the topic of greenwashing. So one of the things that, you know, at Rico, we work with clients on is, you know, what's the right balance of what you say versus what you do? We tend to be quite conservative, actually, on ensuring that we recommend clients talk about results to the greatest extent rather than vision sort of promises uh, where there's no uh, plan behind it. But you know, that's a wider conversation. Sometimes there needs to be an imperative uh, that is set by a CEO in order to go, for- go forth and uh, execute on I'm just wondering, when you look across the market landscape and you think about greenwashing, how do you define it? And what are some of the elements you think are important for avoiding greenwashing?
1: Yeah, very good question. How do you define it? I think this is a very wishy-washy definition, but it's making more of what you're doing than you actually are. And I think it's going against core values or towards core values. I'm not sure which way. But, you know, if, if you're just doing it because you need to be seen to be, to be green, if it doesn't fit into a wider long-term strategy, it's greenwashing. And I think that's actually very broad, really, because I think there's a lot of companies that are just doing something to be seen, to be doing sustainability, or it's just a small part. And that has to be coming in at board level and pushing direction from the top now. With the definition, it's, it's it's like I said, very wishy-washy. But anything that isn't board level strategy that's going towards a net zero 2050, in my eyes, is greenwashing.
0: And I think that, you know, there is something there. I think one of the conversations that we tend to see is around this, you know, how do we incorporate ESG sustainability into the core strategy of a business? Certainly, governance is part of that. And I take your point on you know, ensuring that the highest levels of the organization are engaged on this that strategy in order to, yeah, as a litmus test for whether it's greenwashing or not. Also, the point about authenticity, I think, is really important. One of the questions that I had coming back to sort of, you know, a generation coming to the fore uh, professionally at the moment, I'm really interested in talent. So that tends to be a conversation around the value of deepening purpose in organizations. And as you look across your cohort, you know, friends, colleagues who are establishing themselves in their professions, as you described earlier today, what is it that they're looking for in your experience when it comes to climate performance?
1: At what level do you mean? Like new talent coming at the bottom of the business or my generation is probably sitting at the mid-level of?
0: Great. Let's talk about both. Let's start with your generation.
1: Okay. Um... I don't say they just want to see more, right? They they I think there's like I said, there's this frustration in sort of the big businesses of the people I know that enough isn't happening fast enough. And so they're trying to bring in a generation of new people that are really sort of impact focused. And I think you see that with a lot of Gen Z. There is a huge sort of impact mandate from them and what they want from their job. They don't just want a job anymore. They want to be doing something. They want to be feeling that they're contributing. And I think you see that a lot in memes. I know it's like <laughs> ridiculous.
0: Yeah, let's but, get into memes.
1: Yeah, but like, you know, the number of like climate, the world is going to end memes is uh, there's a lot out there. And, and it's actually a pretty good sort of uh, show of like what people are thinking about, what they're scared about, what they want to work on, right?
0: I'm picturing a graph over time and memes on a particular topic. There's got to be a, an academic paper out there somewhere, Sam, on this particular I'll analysis. Yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: <laughs> um, and so I think, you know, like people are scared. The Generation below is looking and going, is there a planet for me to care about, right? Should I just like, okay, it's kind of done. Let's just enjoy what we've got here and not worry about it. Like I think that's the sentiment coming from sort of, gen z to a degree or at least from a portion of gen z and then uh, sort of our level it feels like people aren't getting the sort of traction they want to see at the board. but it is starting to happen so i think like some of the people i think there is sort of like small projects a little bit of this someone getting called in being like um they say they've got this strategy is that actually sustainable is what they're doing sustainable Is this going to sort of affect our profits in the long term? And I think that's where what was really interesting was, you know, people like Coots Bank, right, which is a private bank. They hold a lot of generational wealth. And so their sort of uh, depositors and people that bank with them are going, what about my grandchildren, right? Where are you investing this money that's going to benefit my grandchildren? Because that's what I care about. I care about legacy. And so there are some people that are sort of at the forefront, I think, of what's going on because they're thinking generationally, they're thinking legacy, whereas still most companies think, what's the CEO going to do in the next five years? And actually, yeah, okay, sure, climate, but um, I have a mandate to improve this company and increase profit over the next five years as CEO in my lifetime. And that is where there's this big clash. I
0: mean, I think that... That is a commonly held belief, this sort of clash between environmental performance and the five-year time horizon. One of the things that we keep seeing, you know, time and again at RICO is that a five to seven-year time horizon tends to align quite well with profitability and sustainability. Mm-hmm. Quarter to quarter is a little bit harder. Yeah. Um, but once you get to sort of that medium term five to seven years, you tend to see a lot of the initiatives and obviously these are, you would have to get into specific case studies in order to prove these points out. But macro studies have looked at, you know, the profitability of really digging into carbon reduction programs. It's not always a two or three year payback, but five to seven years, you can get a lot done. Mm-hmm. Really interesting to hear what you're saying about sort of like, okay, well, what's the strategy and taking a look at the strategy when, you know, people who are sort of entering or mid-level, are coming into an organization if you were the ceo of a coots bank or a larger organization really looking to attract top talent thinking about climate what would be some of the things that you would do to draw them in
1: divest 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 <laughs> right i think like you've just gotta pull your money out of organizations that don't have a sustainable agenda or at least a credible route to sustainability and I guess sort of putting myself on the line a bit here, but a couple of years ago when you compared, maybe two years ago, when you compared like BP and Shell as two big organizations, I would say Shell, just the masters of greenwashing historically and currently, really have zero credible route to net zero and don't care at a senior level from what I've heard from a number of people that work in different industries that interact with them. And then you had BP who were like, actually, yeah, we do see the future as mobility. We see how this company is going to change. There is a path here towards net zero for this company. And that's like two of the world's biggest sort of oil companies, very different mentality at senior level, very different paths that they're on. And I think it comes into that like belief in organizations. BP now, because there's been no government mandate, no government targets, completely backtracked on all of their promises. So, you know, screw them, I guess. But I think that's where that sort of mindset shift on the senior level can make a difference in an organisation to push things forward. And so I guess, sorry, yeah, going back to sort of the, if I was CEO and what looking at those banks, actually, you know, if you're a lot of these big companies that are doing very unsustainable things, if you have no access to finance, you you cannot build your new 300 million platform, you know, or the platform or whatever. And actually, I think finance is one of the, Really key things in climate. If that platform is going to be a stranded asset in ten years' time, you know the bank doesn't want to take on that risk. And I think actually, I'm making people understand that this is going to go so much faster, and it has to go so much faster. I think just sort of bringing that in at that top level of understanding of what direction things are going to go is sort of what I would do to try and convince people that there is a route to sustainability. I think that's what brings in the people that want to work there.
0: Yeah, I get that. And I I think it's a really interesting debate because some would argue divestment is sort of selling to somebody else, right? And there's a whole set of questions around, well, who are you selling to? What are their standards, the level of engagement there? Um, And at the same time, I get your point about just aligning, you know, what is said around goals and investment to the actual performance of those investments. We see a lot of ESG funds that tend to be tech companies, for example, and there are many different views on should it be <laughs> tech companies or should we be looking for best in class performance of different industries? It's a really good debate to be part of. And, you know, I think that uh, I'm sure the, the divestment uh, debate will continue to burn on for some time. Um, and despite its complexity, I think it's really important to hear different views. So thanks for sharing your views on that. One of my final questions for you, Sam, is just as we take a step back. Obviously, you know, in a way, you know, your career has spanned a bit of protest, right? Carrying a placard, entrepreneurialism, research. Really, you've come at this crisis from many different angles. And I'm interested: what what would be a book if you had to name one book that's really shaped your perspective and how you think? Which book would it be?
1: It's actually a recent book. And it's Michaela Lowick's It's Not That Radical. I don't know if you've come across it. I
0: haven't. Tell me more.
1: Um, She is a training doctor and a climate protester. She was very big on the Stop Cambo campaign. And she's written a new book that sort of links together a lot of what has caused the climate crisis to begin with, really. So it is, you know, we're still seeing sort of the colonial North-South divide, right? the the Northern Hemisphere and the white side of the world is sort of causing a lot of this devastation that's going to be happening to the Global South and is already happening to the Global South. And she sort of links together a lot of these different problems and it's like actually to hope for a world that is better and more positive for everyone isn't a radical idea. And it's really being framed as one, especially in like the United States and to a degree our government as well, this idea that we should all be sort of happy, healthy, and safe seems to be crazy and too much to ask for. And so I think that it's a really interesting book and it really helps you to, like, reframe how you think about the climate crisis and sort of the world economy and capitalism as a whole and has given me a bit of hope. And, uh, yeah, I think you got to stay your ground and protest as well.
0: I think it's really interesting on that point about, you know, protest as well as you know being part of the solution you know, coming full circle, that's got to be part of you know dealing with climate anxiety, right? Mm. Like being heard, mm. but then also uh, paving a way toward a better future. Is that what it feels like?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I have given presentations to my local MP before about climate change. <laughs> he didn't ask for it, <laughs> but like I'm just like, okay, well, they're a Tory MP in their mid fifties. Like, do they actually know anything? Right? Do they actually know what the ramifications are of trying to do shale gas in the UK? You know, we're not America. And I think sometimes it's about opening up that window and talking to people. It's very easy to get entrenched, right, in your opinion. Part of that is being open to listening and talking and sort of getting information out there.
0: That's really interesting, this whole point about, you know, listening, because I think that that's that's one thing that at RICO we try to do, this whole sort of um, motivation agnosticism where as long as we're working toward the same thing, we can be motivated, like it Mm -hmm. might be the bottom line, or it might be climate change, or it might be, you know, there are a variety of different motivations that can lead us in the same direction. What are some of the messages that, you know, you've heard afresh from, whether it's a conservative MP, or maybe somebody working in oil and gas, or, you know, Mm -hmm. an argument that has, you've opened yourself to, and it's sort of changed the way you think about the climate crisis?
1: you know, when I when I do think about the, the people I've spoken to in those industries or those positions, I think they just don't have the level of, I want to say fear, <laughs> right? The level of like urgency or the acceptance of the direction things are going. So they're like, oh yeah, the climate crisis. Oh yeah, I guess we should do something about that. But let's do it like this. And it's going to take some time and we can't upset big industry. And it's like, okay, but, like, you do realise on that trajectory, like, we could go past tipping points that mean that we go to a five-degree world and everyone's dead. Like, the difficulty is getting, for me, is getting across the urgency without sounding like someone standing on the street with a placard saying the world is going to end. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the level of difference when you speak to a lot of people in sort of bigger industries or speak to people that are... You know, older and sitting in higher positions of power, is they see climate as a thing, but they don't see the closeness that I think people of our generation do.
0: And when they share that perspective, is there anything that's like resonated, or is there anything where you think, okay, like I'm coming to them with a message, but I'm going to shift it slightly based on what I've heard?
1: Yeah, I think I I always try and go in with sort of facts, sort of you know that sort of evidence based. Here's a reality. Here's a graph. Here's something to show you. You know, and I think I'm always going with that reason thing of trying to listen and be like, well, what is their, what is their problem? Okay, well, big industry is, you know, uh, maybe the chemical industry or some kind of cement industry or something in the UK is, is, is very slow and it supports jobs. And you're like, well, actually, you know, the retrofit industry, if we want to retrofit our homes, we need to have a, a half million homes under retrofit at any one point between now and 2050 from tomorrow, Right. You know, different people project that to be between like one and three million jobs. You know, like if jobs is the problem, let's look at all these green jobs, right? Maybe we can let go of these legacy industries and train people up into these new industries. You know, there's like solutions to all these things which are sustainable, which are good jobs for people, high skilled jobs that don't require investing good money into old, bad money and old, bad industries just because they're, they're historically bad.
0: Yeah. And it's really, I think the part of what you're saying that's really interesting is that it's almost like, you know, you're tapping into what's the fear on the other side. Mm. Because, you know, obviously at RICO, we don't really think of sort of in terms of like good, bad people, we think more in terms of like, what are the values? Like, what are the fears there? And what you're touching on is, I think, really important. It's like, what is the fear of losing jobs that's real there's a social element of that and really getting that fear and then Mm. sharing the message that deals with that fear in a way Mm. it's it also strikes me that you know one of the things that probably creates a bit of the anxiety on your side is not feeling heard not Mm. that fear not being understood identified or necessarily resonating with the other side right so it's sort of interesting that sort of like cross-pollination of fears and how do we find a middle ground
1: absolutely yeah completely just got to listen more, right?
0: I love it. And what a great place uh, to end our conversation, although I have many more questions I'd love to ask. Sam Cryer, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Thank you to Sam for joining us. You can learn more about his work by checking out the links in the episode description or by visiting re.co.com slash the future in sound. The future and sound podcast is written and hosted by Jen Wilson and produced by Chris Attaway. This podcast is brought to you by Rico, a software as a services company helping clients achieve resilient competitive advantage in the long term. you enjoyed this podcast. It would mean a lot to me if you wouldn't mind telling a friend about it or taking a moment to rate us in your podcast app. Until next time, thanks for listening.